2 Samuel, and we're in 1 Samuel chapter 3 this morning. So if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3, if you're using the blue pew Bible in front of you, you'll want to follow along. Helpful every time, but particularly this morning, and it's on page 227. Once you find that, I want you to turn back to Exodus chapter 3, which is on page 46 of the Blue Pew Bible. We'll reference that at some point during the sermon, but I want to read this morning aloud 1 Samuel chapter chapter 3. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. And now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli... And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and laid down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and he went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew. Because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering Forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told, told Eli everything. And hid nothing from him, and he said, It is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. (laughs) 
on the night of December the 4th, 2018, around 10 o'clock, I got the call. It's a call I'll, I'll never forget. I was sitting at home. I was getting some work done at my desk, and Zachary, my son, called and said, Dad, it's time. Sarah and I are on the way to the hospital, and it's time for you to meet your grandson. What a call. I mean, what a call. The next morning, Daniel Paul Phillips was delivered into the world, and the one surprising, overwhelming feeling that I had was a feeling of hope. It wasn't necessarily the thing I was thinking I would feel, but just holding him, I felt hopeful for whatever reasons. In our text this morning, a young boy named Samuel received a call. He received a call he would never forget. Samuel was asleep in the temple. The candles were about ready to run out of oil, so it was probably very early in the morning, maybe three or four o'clock in the morning, still dark. And God, God called Samuel because it was time. It was time for Samuel to meet the Lord. And what a call. The, the chapter opens in a dark, dark place, and it ends in hope. Hope because God has delivered himself to Samuel, and through Samuel, he's going to deliver himself to the rest of Israel and to the world. And as we explore this really fascinating passage here in 1 Samuel, I really want to just do two things. My main thing I want to do is just contrast Eli and Samuel. I think that's the main thing that's happening here. There's a transition taking place from the beginning of chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 4, and, and you're supposed to notice what's happening uh, with Samuel and Eli. But before I contrast those two main characters, I want to define some terms, or I want to, let's say, set the scene. I don't know if you remember uh, the glossary in a book. You remember that? It's been a long time since I read a book that had a glossary, but uh, the idea was you're reading some kind of book, and they, the, the writer knew you wouldn't know every word, you wouldn't know every ter term, so you turn to the back of the book and you look at the glossary, and it defines the terms for you. And so it helps you make a sense of the whole story, and it helps you set the scene for whatever the writer is trying to tell you. When my wife and I watch movies or television shows, she always says, Paul, you don't notice the main characters. You, you notice the music in the background, you notice the scene, you notice all these things that are going around, and I say, yeah, but those things enhance the, the main characters. And so really what I'm trying to do here in the beginning is just to, to set a scene for you, to help you see some terms that will help point or enhance what's taking place in the story with the main character. So let's take a few minutes to, to set that scene. First of all, chapter 4, verse 1, the word of the Lord, the, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Israel is the first term I want to define for us. This is the, this is the biggest part of the backdrop. Israel was given, uh, was a name given to Jacob. You remember Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had two sons, 
Jacob and Esau. And Jacob was the one who was going to continue the line of, of God's chosen people. And in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob had this great wrestling match with God. And he prevailed. So God gave him a new name. God says, what is your name? He says, my name is Jacob. He says, I'm going to give you a new name. And that name is Israel, which means you've contended with God. You've You've wrestled with God. You've, you've gone hand-to-hand. You've gone face-to-face with God. In fact, when, when Jacob finally gets up, he renames this place a name that means, I have seen God face-to-face, and yet I live. And so Jacob is this person who's wrestled with God. He's, he's been intimately engaged with God. If you think about a wrestling match, you've got all of your energy involved. You're, you're completely intertwined with this other person. And so the nation of Israel uh, comes from Jacob. Jacob eventually moves to Egypt because of a famine, and he dies there, but he leaves 12 sons behind, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So 400 years later, these 12 sons turn into 12 tribes. They leave Egypt, they move into the promised land, and they make up the name they, they become the nation of Israel. They identify themselves as this nation who's wrestling with God. We are a nation who are in hand-to-hand, face-to-face contact with God. And God places this nation on a little narrow strip. Think of it as a rectangle. And the top city in the rectangle is Dan. And the very bottom city in the rectangle is Beersheba. That's in the text here. And on this little narrow strip to the north is this great power called Assyria or the nation or the area called Asia. And to the south is this great power of Egypt and this continent of Africa. And so in between these two great powers is this tiny little strip of land, 15 miles wide at its most narrow. And you're supposed to think of it as a little bridge in between two great world powers. And God has strategically located his people at that bridge point. So as these two powers trade with each other or go to war with each other, what's going to happen? They're going to come across a people who are face-to-face with God. They're going to find out what it means to know God. They're going to see it in God's people. And they're going, to, they're going to see this. And the whole world is supposed to know about God through these faithful people who live on this little bridge called Israel. Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will establish you as a holy people. If you keep His commands, you walk in His ways then all the people of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord. So the whole world is supposed to be blessed by these few people intimately engaged with God and living according to his word. That's Israel. Shiloh. Shiloh is a small town, an important Old Testament town, and it's right in the middle of the triangle. If you thought about the triangle, and you put your finger right in the middle of Israel, you would come very close to Shiloh, verse 21. Shiloh is the hometown of the temple of the Lord, or better known as the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a tent. It's 45 feet long. It's 15 feet wide. When God rescued his people out of Egypt, they lived in tents in the desert for 40 years. 
And God wanted to be with his people, and he wanted his people to be near him. So what did God do, decide to do? I'll live in a tent. It's amazing. I'm going to live in a tent, and I want to make sure that when we set up camp, I want to be right in the middle. This is such a fascinating thing to me that God's not somehow distant. He's saying, guys, can you put my tent in the middle? That way, everybody can be near me, and I can be near everybody, and I'll live in a tent just like you. It's stunning, and you can see, you can see the gospel. Can you not even right here? That God's going to put on a tent that's going to be like us, and he's going to come and live with us. He's going to live in the middle of where we live. And so he's, he's put himself in this tabernacle, and when they move into the, to, um, to Israel, they say, well, let's put the tent in the middle. And so they find this little town called Shiloh, and that's where Eli and Samuel are ministering. So we have Israel. This is the biggest backdrop. We have Shiloh, and now we have two more terms, the Ark of God, verse 3. The Ark of God, we'll talk a lot more about that in the next couple of weeks because it's the main character, that's the best way to say it, in chapter 4, 5, and 6. It's a wooden box, that's why it's called an ark. It's overlaid with gold. On the top of the, the box is a, it's a kind of seat, it's called the mercy seat. And inside the ark are two stone tablets. These are the tablets that God wrote on, the Ten Commandments. So God is a king, he sits on a throne, a golden throne, and he rules according to his word. That's the picture we're supposed to have. He sits among his people, he's a king, so he, he sits on a throne, and he rules in some way, and he rules according to what he says, according to his word. And then the last term, the lamp of God, very important little piece of scenery here, verse 3, it's a golden candlestick, single golden candlestick. It looks like a branch, and then it has three candlesticks coming from the side. So there's seven total. It's called a menorah sometimes. So you have sort of a single stick, and then branching off are three on the side. So there's seven total, and it means a lot of things, but one of the things it represents is the burning bush. That's why it looks like a branch. It looks like a bush, a big bush that's on fire, and it's sitting inside the temple. It's supposed to remind you of when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. So you're supposed to notice, when you read through chapter 3, you're supposed to notice all this scenery. And if you were my wife, you'd be like, let's just get to the main characters. I mean, the scenery, the vocabulary, that's enough. I mean, I understand, okay, but it's about Eli and Samuel, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's about Eli and Samuel, but... You're supposed to notice these things because it tells you something even before the characters come on. Inside the tabernacle, the oil that keeps the seven candles lit, when you come into the scene, if it was like a movie, it's, the candles are about ready to go out. It's not just that the candles are getting low on oil, it's that there may not be any more word of God. God spoke through this burning bush. This, God speaks to his people and the, the lights are going down. So you're supposed to feel this danger that, that there might not be any more word from the Lord. And when the, the lamp of God goes out, when the, the word of God is no longer communicated from his house, it's not only bad for Israel, it's bad for the whole world. 
The whole world is supposed to come into the house of God and to come through the people of God and hear and feel how it is to be in a relationship with God. And when those people don't have his word and they're not following after his word, it's bad for them, but it's bad for the whole world. So there's a great danger here. You're supposed to see how dangerous it is. How will the world know that there's a true God? How will the world know that God has spoken? How will the world know that God is inviting people to be intimately engaged with him, to see him face to face if they don't see it through his people? So it's a danger for Israel. It's a danger for, for the whole world. It's a danger for us. How is the world supposed to know about God? We're supposed to funnel through churches, people, the people of God who are intimately connected with God, who know God's word, who follow after God's word and say, gosh, this person's connected. They're face to face with God and I have a hunger for that and I want to know about that. But if the church loses the word of God, it's not just bad for the people, it's bad for the whole city. So if you're new here this morning to Christ's community, the first phrase in our mission statement is not accidental. We're teaching the Bible. We're going to teach the Bible. Because if we lose that, if that light goes out, we're all going to be in darkness. We can have a bunch of other things that make, make us look like we know what we're doing, but if we lose that, if I lose that, if you lose that in your soul, the lights go out. And so we're here understanding this. We're not just making this up. We're saying this is so important because of the Bible in so many ways. And we see it so clearly here in chapter 3. Now let's look at these main characters, Eli and Samuel, the, the main point of the text. Uh, we see that the Lord is he's looking for a leader. He's always looking for a leader to insert into a dark moment in history. And Eli has failed. Eli and his two worthless sons who we talked about last week. And so the light's, light's quickly fading, and God calls this young man. And he calls this young man who's quietly been putting himself in the Lord's way. He's living at the temple. God's still looking for people to work through, and he's looking for people to work through who are living near him, who are putting themselves in his way. And the writer does such a wonderful job highlighting the transition. I want you to follow it with me. Chapter 2, verse 11. Turn back there. Chapter 2, verse 11. Notice what it says. Samuel is ministering to the Lord under Eli the priest. Chapter 2, verse 11. And the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. It's sort of like a starting place. Then you turn to verse 18 and you see that Samuel has taken on this priestly garment. His mom has come to visit him, and he, and he puts this little coat on. It's called an ephod, and it's what a priest would wear. And so she goes home and says, well, he's going to eventually be a priest, so I'll give him this little, this little small priestly garment, and he puts it on, and you, you, get the, you get the scenery that he's ministering before the Lord with Eli the priest, and then he's putting on this little garment. He's moving towards becoming a priest. And then in verse 26, Samuel's growing in stature. People are beginning to pay attention to Samuel. 
And it's not only in favor of the Lord, it's also in front of men. So they're, they're beginning to notice Samuel and then notice this transition, easy to miss, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, period. Remember what he said in the first? Eli the priest. Now it's just Eli. And you're supposed to feel, uh, there's a transition coming. The, the way God was using Eli is shifting now to Samuel. Now let's look at Eli and just notice how the author describes his failing. First of all, verses 1 and 2. Now the young man Samuel was ministering before the Lord, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, so they could not see, was lying down in his own place. Eli's physical condition is supposed to help you understand it's a reality also of his spiritual condition. Eli couldn't see the light of day. He couldn't see the light of God's word. There's no frequent vision because Eli stopped listening to God. It's not that God's somehow not available. Eli's no longer available to God. And so there's no more vision. There's no more speaking of, of, of God through Eli because Eli is not following after God's word. And you see in verse 2, notice the phrase, he's lying down in his own place. He's not like Samuel in the temple of God. No, Eli's moving away. He's moving away from God. I, I'm, I'm in my own place now. I, I don't need your word anymore. I don't need your place anymore. So this man of God who was with God in the temple, who, who understood God's word, somehow decided, hey, I don't need to listen to God anymore. And I've got my own place. I can take care of myself. There might be somebody in here that's making that kind of movement. I mean, you still have the robe. You got a Bible. You got a cross around your neck. You got a tattoo. You got whatever it is that's sort of like the symbol, but you don't have the substance anymore. You, you've started listening to your own word. You, you've got your own place. That's what's happening here with Eli. Eli's unwillingness to see God's word, his movement away, begins to compromise his moral clarity and his conviction about evil. And you see this in verse 13. He, he's unwilling to restrain his sons. That's the biggest knock on Eli. And I'm declaring to him that I'm about to punish his house forever. Why? For the iniquity that he knew. His sons were blaspheming God. And he didn't restrain them. His sons were stealing from the Lord. His sons were, were having sex with these young women who were at the, the doors of the temple. And Eli knew, and he didn't restrain them. He didn't come in and fight against evil in the way he was supposed to. And it's very interesting when you study this passage, the word dim in verse 2 is the same root word as restrain in verse 13. It's, it's like when Eli's eyes closed, he closed his eyes to, to, to God's word, he closed his eyes to evil. 
Ever notice how that happens? You get away from God's word, your vision gets dim, and things that you know are evil, they don't look quite so evil anymore. And that's what's happening for Eli. He's moved away, and now he doesn't have the moral authority anymore to really enter in and do what's right about his sons. And such a heavy note it ends on in verse 14. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli. This is God swearing, making an oath that the iniquity or the sin of Eli's house shall not be atoned for. I mean, what a heavy verse. We talked about this last week. It's too late for Eli and his sons. There's, no, there's nothing that they can do to atone for, not by sacrifice and not by, by offering. You get the feeling that, that, boom, the doors have closed on Eli and his sons. Now you're supposed to notice all that, and then, then you're supposed to notice Samuel. Samuel, this, this person who's that like, like my grandson, he's being delivered into the world, and you pick him up, and you have so much hope after all this dark heaviness. Samuel isn't lying down in his own place. Notice that. He's lying down in the temple of the Lord. He's, he's near the lamp. He's near the ark. Samuel has put himself in a position to hear the Lord. He's put himself in a position to hear the Lord. He's put himself in a position to hear the Lord. This is what we would call spiritual disciplines. You, you, you put yourself, you discipline yourself to be in a place that you can hear from the Lord. You put yourself every morning in front of God's word and read it so you are in position to hear the Lord. You put yourself in a quiet place so there's no distraction. You're putting yourself in position to hear the Lord. When you're praying, you're putting yourself in position to hear the Lord. So Samuel, over and over and over, the, the writer tells us he keeps putting himself in a position to hear the Lord. The, the best way I think about spiritual disciplines is, is getting a suntan. Some of you have heard me say this before. If you say, hey, today I'm going to go to the beach and get a tan. I'm going to go work on my tan. Well, what kind of work are you doing, really? To get a tan. You're going to work on your tan. I mean, is that like a workout? That's not like CrossFit, right? You just lay down. Turn over, turn so you don't burn, right? That's all you do. But you put yourself in a position to be changed by this object. And that's what you're doing with spiritual disciplines. You're just saying, I'm opening up my Bible. I'm opening up the sun and I want my, my complexion to change. I want my whole character to change. And, and that's what Samuel's done over and over and over again. And now God's ready. Now, Samuel doesn't get it, obviously. It takes him four times. It's understandable. But he's put himself in a position to hear the Lord. And we would want to ask ourselves, if you want to change your character, your soul, you just have to put yourself in a position before the Lord. And then I want you to have this picture in mind. Samuel's laying down. He's near the lamp of God. And what does this represent? It represents the burning bush. 
And God calls out, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel responds, here I am. Samuel, Samuel. God's calling out, and he says, here I am. Now let's turn back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. Very important to see this for yourself. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. This is Moses in the burning bush. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed, just like a candle stand. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God put, Moses put himself in the way to see God God called to him and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. You see what you're supposed to hear? I've said this a couple other times. When you read through the Bible, there are certain notes that reoccur. They reoccur. And you hear this in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, Exodus chapter 3. And then Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel says, here I am. You're supposed to say, I've heard that note before. God's going to do something. There's a great darkness in Egypt. And God's going to call somebody who's going to put himself in the way and move through this person. And now there's a great darkness in Israel. And God's looking for somebody. And he says, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel says, here I am. Here I am. The same theme is moving through the Bible, the same chord. All shadows that are pointing towards the real Savior, Jesus. Somebody who's going to follow after God's word no matter what the cost. One final contrast here. Samuel doesn't close his eyes to evil even when it's right in front of him. Courageously, Samuel has to tell Eli what he heard. I mean, imagine delivering that word. Imagine hearing that for the first time. Hey, this is the first thing I hear, this big judgment. This big judgment against this person who's been my, my mentor, Eli. And although he's nervous, he tells every word to Eli. When, God, when, Sam, when, Samuel, hear God's, when Samuel hears God's word, he's going to speak every word. He's going to speak every word. Therefore, God's not going to let any word fall to the ground for Samuel. It might be helpful um, to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15 with me. And I want to show you when this happens one other time. Where Samuel is different than Eli. He's willing to stand up in the face of evil. Uh, Samuel had told Saul... Saul, who's now the king, you're supposed to fight this, this, uh, these, these evil people called the Amalekites, and they have a king named Agag, A-G-A-G. And he's really an evil man, and you, you're supposed to put him to death. And uh, Saul comes back and has decided to spare Agag. And you see uh, now Samuel is confronted with Agag in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 32. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to Samuel cheerfully, this evil man 
who looks like he's gotten away with something, and he says, surely the bitterness of death has passed. In other words, I, if I, I'm safe. And Samuel said to Agag, as your sword has made many women childless, he's been a ruthless man, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. A man who follows after God will hack to death evil that's standing in front of him. That's exactly what Adam was supposed to do and failed. And Samuel is a Christ-like figure. He's going to stand and look at this evil and he's not going to let it stay in the garden. He's going to hack it to death. David's going to do the same thing for Goliath. And all of these are shadows of Jesus who's going to ultimately crush the head of the serpent. You're supposed to hear these themes all the way through. Now these themes, these notes, they play over and over again in the Bible, but they play over and over again in our day. It's not as if God's just shut off how He operates uh, when we get to the end of the Bible. You and I, we are in desperate need of leadership who will consistently put themselves in the way of God. We need leaders who are going to follow after God. We need leaders who are willing to confront evil that stands right in front of them and take it on, not by might, but by the sword, which is, what is the sword? The Word of God. That's how you hack down evil things. It's not, by, it's not by muscle. It's not by being in positions of power. It's, being, it's knowing the person of power and knowing his word and having the courage to speak his word at a really critical moment. Those are the kinds of people God's still looking for to say, I need people who will say, here I am. I'm your servant. I will deliver your word no matter what the cost no matter what the circumstance. Now notice this great, these great phrases, a hopeful ending. Samuel opens the house of the Lord, verse 15. You're supposed to just think, oh yes, he's opening the gates. It's not Eli's wicked sons who are abusing people. Now we've got a new priest. We've got the right guy. He's, he's going to open the doors for us. None of his words are going to fall to the ground because he's faithful to speak all of God's word. He's going to be a prophet. And then notice in chapter 4, verse 1, to tie it all together. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. And through Samuel, what? Came to Israel. Came to the nation who's grappling with God again. This one man got this whole nation grappling with God, contending with God face to face so that now not only is that going to benefit Israel, it's going to benefit the whole world because there's finally a group of people, there's finally a church who trusts the Word of God, who are, who's grappling with the Word of God. So when the world comes through the church and comes through the lives of the people, they'll say, these people know God. They're different. 
They trust his word. They have courage to speak his word, even though it might be some harm to them. So today, you might just assess where you are. In Eli, I mean, you look all right. You got, you got an ephod on. You know some answers, but really, really you're drifting away. Mostly you live according to your word. You live in your own place. And yeah, you step into church on Sundays, but otherwise you just kind of go your own way. That's a dangerous place to be. If you're in your teens or your 20s especially, I'm not saying God can't use you if you're 55 like me. I'm just saying this is a young man. and God's using this young man to change a whole nation. So I'm looking at my college friends down here. He's still looking for young men and young women. But he's looking for young men and young women who will intentionally put themselves in front of God. Not in front of a computer screen, not in front of a phone. In front of God. And be ready when God speaks to say, here I am. I'm your servant. I'm going to say whatever you say. That's what I'm going to trust in, your word and not mine. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so, um, so grateful for Samuel. We're so grateful in a dark time, you're still moving, you're still looking, and you're still doing that today. And I pray that as we look closely at this scene and we see Eli and his evil sons, And Samuel, these are all people who are inside the church, but some are in great danger and some are going to bring hope. And so I pray that you would would pierce every heart, every soul with your word this morning to help us see ourselves correctly, to hear your voice and say, here I am, I'm I'm moving back towards you, I want to have a an intimate relationship with you. I pray that you would you would pierce every heart, every soul. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song together.